about you, um, that, just, that just grips my heart. It just grips my heart. The things that people will do for the Lord, it just makes me say, am I, you know, what am I doing? I don't know about you, but I just, oh gosh, that was amazing for me. Just amazing. I'm just so thankful for that team that serves so faithfully to um, bring people like that to, to us as a church family. What a blessing. Whew, gosh. Um, kind of lost my way here. Forgive me. I get really emotional about stuff like that. It's just so grateful. A couple of things. Um, I'm sure you know by now that uh, not this weekend, but next weekend is Pastor Rob's last weekend with us. So if you're not going to be here next weekend, make sure you say goodbye to him um, tonight, okay? Um, so I just want to remind you of that. The other thing is, for those of us who are still in contact with Pastor John, my predecessor of two and a half years ago, we're going to cover 91 verses tonight. <laughs> Don't tell John, please. He will never, never forgive me. Should he get to heaven before me, he will, he will just say, I'm not sure about this guy, Lord. So it's got to be our secret, man. Don't wrap me out to Pastor John, please. I'd really appreciate that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right, let me find my way. I think I'm good. I, I don't know, man. It's, it's weird. I, just get, I, I feel like I get more and more excited to do this from one weekend to the next. It's just such a joy uh, and such a privilege and, and a responsibility. I understand that to wrestle with God's Word during the week and then to bring it to you guys. Uh, we don't take that lightly. Myself and Pastor Dave and Pastor Rob and Pastor Doug. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for the way that you engage the most important book ever written, God's Word. His Word to us, given for us. So thank you so much. As I've done the last few weeks, I just want to give a, re a quick recap um, to lead us up to chapter 7 and 8, okay? In chapter 1, if you recall, in Nehemiah chapter 1, it was brought to Nehemiah's attention that, that things back home in Jerusalem are, are not good, that the, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. In chapter 2, Nehemiah gets permission to go back and rebuild uh, the city and the walls. He gets permission from the king. He's the king's cupbearer, and the king allows him to go to rebuild the city. And in chapter 3, we, we really see the, the church at work where we saw all kinds of people from all kinds of professions doing all kinds of projects to advance the Lord's work. And then in chapter 4, Pastor Dave introduced us to the, to the Bummer Brothers, as he likes to call them, and I just think that's so clever. Uh, the the, the, the Sanballat and Tobiah, these, these two uh, knuckleheads who were furious and mocked the Jews in order to discourage the work from being done. And then in chapter 5, Nehemiah endures problems from within. So in chapter 4, problems from the outside. And in chapter 5, problems from the inside. The enemy tried to attack both externally and internally, but neither so far has brought success. And so then in chapter 6, the enemy goes after Nehemiah personally. So he's got externally, internally, and now personally, the enemy is trying to slow down the work of God. But as we saw at the end of chapter 6, verse 15, that the wall was completed in 52 days, which is just incredible to watch when the Lord gets serious about stuff. He can get a lot of stuff done in a short period of time. Napoleon described a leader this way. He describes a leader as a dealer in hope. Many of us perhaps need to go see our dealer. <laughs> and we need a dealer in hope. 
so many people are hopeless or have a high sense of hopelessness. But Nehemiah is one of these people, when you read Nehemiah, he is a dealer in hope. Mm. Nehemiah 7 and 8, we have a transition now taking place. In the 13 chapters of Nehemiah, now we're in a time of transition. In chapters 1 through 6, we see the restoration of Jerusalem. In chapter 7, it transitions to the restoration of the Jews. So 1 through 6 is the restoration of Jerusalem, and now we're transitioning to the restoration of the Jews. One commentary says this, I love it, it says, The walls were completed, the gates restored, the enemy annoyed, but Nehemiah's work was not finished. A city is much more than walls and gates and houses. In the first half of this book, the people existed for the walls, but now the walls exist for the people. God had great things in store for Jerusalem. One day, His Son would walk those city streets, teach in the temple, and die outside the city walls. This is important work that's taking place in the book of Nehemiah. We talk about and love the concept of restoration, don't we? But at the heart of restoration is the fact that something was broken. At the heart of restoration, which we love to talk about, is the fact that something was broken. Sin destroyed God's people. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us that the Lord always has in mind restoration. Always in mind restoration. I'm going to show you this picture of a, of a wild stallion. It's a good illustration for us as we leave that picture up. It's the, it's the picture of, of brokenness as a wild stallion that wants its independence. It does not want to be ridden. It does not want to be told what to do. Now, it, it doesn't mind if the cowboy feeds it or keeps a trough full of water. It doesn't mind having a place to go to get out of the rain. It, it just doesn't want anyone to get on its back. But the process of breaking a stallion involves the cowboy getting on its back and riding it. The stallion usually bucks and bucks and tries to throw the cowboy off. Get off my back, the stallion says. Bless me with food, bless me with water, bless me with covering, but don't get on my back. The cowboy gets on its back and rides it out. Sometimes he's thrown off, but the goal, but if the goal is the breaking, then he rides that wild horse until it yields. How do you know when a horse has been broken? It doesn't, it doesn't lose its strength. It doesn't lose the, the muscles in its legs. It doesn't lose its, God's, its God-given uniqueness and, and its identity as a horse. It's just now a horse under somebody else's control. Isn't that a great picture for us? Many of us want the blessings from the Lord. But we don't want Him riding us and bringing us into submission to His will. That's our life. It goes all the way back to Genesis. We just want to be a wild stallion. Feed me, bless me, water me, protect me. Don't ride me. I want to do my own thing. Let's pray. Almighty God, we, we thank You. Lord, that You are a God of restoration. But Lord, You restore us because... We're broken. 
Sin has broken us. It has separated us from you. And Lord, you pursued us. And we appreciate that. Lord, our very lives depend upon it. And so we are very, very grateful. Lord, help us to continue to be submissive to your will. To not do things on our own. Because apart from you, Lord, your word says that we can do nothing. It's in your mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So, I want to go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 7. Um, And I just kind of want to give us a quick overview of a few things. And we're going to pull all these pieces together. In in Nehemiah chapter 7, in the first three verses, here's what's happening, right? First three verses, the walls rebuilt, all the doors are hung, and guards are appointed to protect Jerusalem. That's one through three. In 4, verses 4 through 73... There's a few things going on there. Verse 4 tells us that only a few people were residing in Jerusalem. That's what verse 4 tells us. And so Nehemiah wanted to populate it with people of pure Jewish descent. And then we see a list of all these people from the genealogies. One commentary says this. Listen, I think this is very helpful for us. One commentary says, A list of names might seem boring. But these people were God's bridge from the defeats of the past to the hopes of the future. And it made it possible for Jesus Christ to come into the world. In Hebrews 11, we have something called the Hall of Fame of Faith. This is like the Old Testament. People like this are the Old Testament Hall of Fame of Faith. People that build a bridge from the defeats of the past to the hopes of the future. They risked everything to obey God and restore the nation. This list is also a reminder that our Lord keeps accounts of His servants. (laughs) Did you know that? It's a reminder that the Lord keeps accounts of you and of me, His servants. Where we came from, that's what's in this list in chapter 7. What family we belong to, how much we did for Him, how much we gave as the end of chapter 7 articulates who gave what for the work of God. Romans 14.12, it's not on the screen, but you can look it up later. Romans 14.12 tells us that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Did you know that? That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah, verses 1 through 8, the focus shifts from the wall to the word. The focus shifts from the wall to the word. Look at verses 1 through 3. We're going to read those in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in the front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe, (laughs) to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to them. And then Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the assembly of of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Gosh, I'm really sorry. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law for hours. 
It's just such a beautiful picture, I think. So that's the first verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8. Verses 1 through 8, the focus shifts from the wall to the Word of God. In verses 9 through 12, the Word brings weeping. So we shift in verses 1 through 8 from the wall to the Word, and then in verses 9 through 12, the Word brings weeping, which means grief and repentance for sin. Look at verse 9 of chapter 8. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And we should be grieving over our sin. We should weep over our sin. But it's a day of rejoicing when we look into God's law and recognize that we are sinful. But there's hope and there's a joy and there's a future and there's a promise and there's victory. And that's the day of the Lord when we're in God's Word and it points us to the Lord and the victory is found in His Word. Gosh, it's just such a wonderful picture. And so then we get to the last part of Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. So the first part was it's no longer about the wall, it's about the Word. The second part is the Word brings weeping. And the third part is that the Word brings walking. Right? The Word brings walking. We're not to just hear the Word and weep over our sins, but we're now to walk in the Word. Not just weep over our sin, but to walk in the victory of what God calls us to and how He commands us. They wanted to live as the Lord commanded. Look at verses 14 in the first part of 15. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation. We want to do what God's Word tells us to do. So we don't want to just have the Word which brings weeping, but we want to have the Word that brings walking. We want to walk in obedience. The Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder of their wandering in the wilderness. What do we do to remind ourselves that we were lost, that we were wandering in the wilderness? And so the Feast of Booths was a reminder that they were lost, that they were in a wilderness. But it also points to a promise that they were heading to the promised land. Not just that we're no longer lost, but we're in the land of promise. So it reminded them to look back that they were lost, but to look forward into the land of promise, to heaven, being with the Lord for eternity one day. I want to just focus on two takeaways for our time, for the rest of our time. Two takeaways. That as followers of our God, we must count the cost. We must count the cost. And then we must wonder. We must have a wonder for God's Word. Be, to be bewildered and enamored and in love. Do we wonder at the Word of God? I hope we do. Our first takeaway to count the cost. Nehemiah chapter 7 and Nehemiah chapter 8 provide a, a checklist, if you will, of sorts in how to follow the Lord. Let me explain. Here's what's happening in all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. Keep the enemy out. That's the first checklist for being a follower of God. Number one, keep the enemy out. That's what they did. In, in the first three verses of chapter 7, they put guards around all around the wall that they just completed. 
Church, <laughs> we got to figure out how to keep the enemy out. We have to figure out how to keep the enemy out of our lives. The second thing in chapter 7 and 8 is to get the word in. Keep the enemy out, get the word in. That's what's happening in chapter 7 and 8. Get the enemy out, get the word in. And the third thing is live the word out. Keep the enemy out, get the word in, live the word out. Get the enemy out, get the word in, live the word out. That's our life as followers of the Lord. Get the enemy out, get the word in, live the word out. Amen? That's what we do every day, every week. Find out who the enemy is, get him out. Find out where your word is, get it in. Find out how to live it out. Amen? I want to take us to Luke chapter 14. It's called discipleship, right? About counting the cost. If we're going to be disciples of our Lord, we must count the cost. Here's some verses on discipleship that I think would be really helpful. Let me ask you, let me ask you a real simple question. What takes priority in your life over the Lord? Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me? It's open mic time. Anybody want to come on open mic time? What in your life comes before the Lord? All right, you guys are shy. Like nobody wants to answer that question, right? Because nothing should. It might, but nothing should. Let's look at Luke 14, starting in verse 25. This is, my heading says, discipleship tested. There's a test? Yes. Now large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, hey man, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Nobody comes before God is what that means. It doesn't mean to hate them. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one who has 20,000 or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. We must count the cost. We must get the enemy out. We must get the word in. We must live the word out. We must be honest with God about if we've counted the cost or not. And so often we struggle in our walk with the Lord and it's because we just haven't truly counted the cost of what it means to follow Him and we allow other things to come before Him. And the Lord says, there shall be no other gods before me. In verse 2, going back to Nehemiah, in verse 2 of chapter 7, I, we get a small glimpse of this thing called discipleship. Look at verse 2. It says, He put Hanani my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem because they were faithful and feared God more than many. Faithful and fearful. Those are great words for us. If we're going to get the enemy out and get the word in and live the word out, we must remember that it's going to require us to be faithful and fearful. 
faithful to our God and fearful in a reverential way of who God is and what he expects of us as his followers. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. says this, <laughs> the greatest ability is dependability. The greatest ability is dependability. Nehemiah was dependable as a follower of God. God wants us to be dependable for us to count the cost as followers of his. If you remember back in Nehemiah 5 verse 15, that Nehemiah, it says in 5 verse 15 that Nehemiah did good because he had a fear of God. He was faithful and fearful. That Nehemiah did good stuff for the Lord because it said he had a fear of God. In also chapter 5, verse 9, we saw some Jews that did not do good. And verse 9 of chapter 5 tells us that because they did not have a fear of God. And they go hand in hand. We have to have a proper fear of God so that we can be faithful. And we need to be faithful so that we can have a proper fear of God. They go hand in hand in our followership. If we don't have a proper fear of the Lord, we will fail to count the cost and we will struggle to mature in our faith. Psalm 31.23 is a great promise for us about being faithful. It says, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. Why? Because the Lord preserves the faithful. The Lord preserves us when we're faithful to him. And as we fear him and we understand who he is and we understand who he is through his word, it allows us to be fearful of him so that we can be faithful to him and then he will preserve us. Look at 1 Timothy 1.12, same sort of thing. He says, I thank, Paul writes this to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. God strengthens us. He preserves us when we as his followers prove to be faithful and God-fearing. Our second takeaway is to wonder at his word, to wonder at the word of God. Now let's look at the build-up. Go back to, the, if you're not already in Nehemiah 7, let's look at the end of chapter 7 at verse 73, and we're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 8 to see the build-up here. So at the end of 73, right, so he's wrapping up uh, chapter 7. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the people, the temple servants, and all Israel, I don't know why he didn't just say that to begin with, right, lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. The stage is set, chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man. I, I don't really know what that means other than I like the way it sounds. I hope this is us gathering as one people, as the body, the body of Christ, singular. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women. That's four, four five, six hours. Those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'm only asking you to endure me for about 35 minutes. I'm a lot nicer than Nehemiah. Don't you forget that. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium which they had made for the, for the purpose and beside him stood a bunch of people, 13 people. Ezra opened the book in, in verse 5 in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people and when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
gosh, this is just an amazing picture to me. Then Ezra blessed the, the, the Lord, the great God, and all the people said, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then these other people explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. It's so encouraging to know that even back then, we people needed help to understand God's Word. Sometimes we need help, and that's okay. That's our responsibility to get the help that we need. And so that's the build-up, right? Like everybody's in place at the end of chapter 7, and then all the lights and all the attention is on the Word of God. Now if you remember, maybe you don't, the first deportation out of Jerusalem to Babylon was 605 B.C., 605 B.C., right here when Ezra reads the Word of God, 444 B.C. It's 161 years that God's Word had been void of His, of his, of his house. 161 years. Ezra arrived 14 years before that in 458 B.C., and it really makes me mad that Ezra had 14 years to prep a sermon. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like, I begged for 14 days. Pastor Dave and I have this ongoing joke. Right, Pastor Dave? Because I do the bulk of the preaching. Dave preaches about once a month. And every time he has a chance to say to me, man, I just love having a month to prepare a message. You're so, you're so good to me, Pastor Mark. Every time he has a chance. And he knows it makes me crazy because I have like six days. Right? It's like I just got to churn him out. Six days, six days, six days. And he just loves to rub it in. So I thought this was funny for you and I, Pastor Dave, that Ezra had 14 years to prep, man. Gosh! But that must have been a great message. That must have been an amazing message. So, as I mentioned, it was sin. It was sin as the result of neglecting, ignoring God's Word, re rejecting, disobeying the Word of God that led to captivity. It was sin against the Lord and His Word that led to captivity. Turn a little to your left to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Starting at verse 36. <laughs> this is Solomon. Solomon is what we call in the Bible business a wise guy. Get it? That's a joke. All right. So Solomon says, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. That's not just a New Testament quote from Romans. And you are angry with them because God hates sin. And you deliver them to an enemy because sin brings captivity so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and they repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity saying we have sinned we have committed iniquity and have acted wickedly if they return to you 
with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. To sin means to not do what God has commanded us to do, to go against His Word. So to be restored out of sin, out of captivity, is for us to be immersed in God's Word, to wonder at His Word. And so I would say it this way, whatever our eagerness is, our eagerness to get out of captivity, whatever that is, sin in your life, can only be found by getting into the truth of God's Word. That's it. That, that's the lesson. Any eagerness we have to get out of captivity can only be found by getting into the truth of God's Word, getting the Word in and so we can live it out. Can you imagine the anticipation of hearing God's Word after them and their ancestors were in captivity for 161 years? Can you imagine the anticipation of hearing God's Word back in their hometown of Jerusalem? after 161 years. I'd listen all day as well. I imagine it'd be easy to listen all day. Please don't stop. Do we come to church with the same anticipation that we see in Nehemiah chapter 8? Do we go to Bible study or community groups? Do we wake up each morning with that same anticipation that is found in Nehemiah 8? Ezra, bring God's law. Read it to us from morning until midday. It says that all the people gathered as one man. They asked Ezra to bring the book, verse 1 tells us of chapter 8. And it says in verse 1, bring the book of the law which the Lord God had given to Israel. God gave it to them. It's not a book about God. It's a gift from God to you and to you, and to you. Some of us have 12 of his gifts on our bookshelves at home. Right? It's, it was given to us. It's a book given to you, Manny, and you, Susan, and you, Dave. Package, Dave. Oh, who's it from? It's from God. I would like to open that. Is this how we revere the Word of God in our lives? Do we have a wonder at God's Word? It's a book for you. Ugh. Which the Lord had given to His people. And then it says in verse 3 that Ezra read from it early morning until midday. And it says that all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'm going to jump ahead here just to, just one line these are some things for me golf movies watching I don't, I don't play much golf anymore watching golf movies nascar doing projects around the home going out to dinner going to a ducks game like i did last night where they beat the kings two to one thank you jesus <laughs> sorry <laughs> so, whew, so, i know I, I know did i say that out loud listen I can do 
I can, and I do, attentively spend hours on these types of things that I just mentioned. I can, and I do, spend hours on those types of things. Can I say the same about the Lord's Word? Can I, I can sit for two and a half hours and watch the, the, the ducks beat upon somebody. Sorry, Randy, I forgot that you're a Kings fan. Randy, will you forgive me? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to make it up to you somehow, Randy. That's right, you are a big Kings fan. I like the Kings. Anyway, we spend hours doing all kinds of things, don't we? But do we do the same with the Lord's Word? Here's some challenges. These are just some challenges. Think about, think, just think about them. Every time we start a new book, I ask you to try to read it in one sitting. The next book we're going to do after Nehemiah is Philippians. Anybody know how many chapters are in Philippians? Four. <laughs> and they're not long. You can do it. Right? When we do that, pause. Spend time. Read the entire book in one sitting. Many people here, I know many people here are reading the Bible through in a year. Many have done it for years. I feel like I've heard it more it, it, you know, in the last week or two than I have in a couple years that I've been here. How many people are reading through the Bible? And they make these one-year Bibles. My wife's doing, this year she's doing the chronological Bible, how the Bible was written chronologically and in, 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 in it's broken down for one year. But here's some other things that I would challenge you to do. I just made these up, right? So A for creativity. You may not like them, but read five chapters for five days. Just read five chapters, five days in a row. Just try that. Five chapters, five days in a row. Then try 10. Try reading 10 chapters for 10 days in a row. If you're suffering, God will bless you. It'll be, you'll get through it, right? It's God's Word. Like I know that can, I, I'm serious. I get that that can be hard. If you've never done that before, that can be challenging. But 10 days will come and go pretty quickly. It'll take about 10 days. <laughs> right? 10 chapters in 10 days. And then try going to 15. Try reading 15 chapters for 15 days. A few years back, maybe five or six years ago, for seminary, I had to read the entire Old Testament in four weeks. It was fierce. It was fierce. One of the coolest things I have ever done to be immersed in the Old Testament Scripture, in four weeks. Hours a day to get through it. I loved it. I'm going to ask you a very challenging and thought-provoking question. Very challenging and thought-provoking question. It might make you a little uncomfortable. Would you take vacation days or PTO days just to spend time in God's Word? I'm guessing, because I've never done it. I've never done it. I'm guessing you haven't either. Would you, would I, say, I'm taking a PTO day just so I can spend five or six hours in the Word of God so that we can wonder at the Word of God? Isn't that a great challenge? Would you take a vacation day or a PTO day to spend time in God's Word? Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8. Look at verses 5 and 6. Where in Nehemiah? I was in Chronicles. Okay, back in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8, 5 and 6. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the great God. And the people answered, Amen, Amen. They lifted up their hands. They bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Nehemiah is making a comparison between God's Word and God Himself. He opened the Word and they bowed down and worshiped the Lord. How much reverence do you give the Lord in general? Because it goes hand in hand with how much reverence you're going to give His Word. If you revere God, you must revere His Word. They go hand in hand. Warren Wearsby says this. I think this is a great quote for us. He says, We will defend the Bible as the Word of God, but we don't always treat it like the Word of God. Written for us. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, The primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. The decaying, the decadent periods and eras in human history or in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined. It is just my deepest desire that when every time we gather, the focal point up here is never me, never Pastor Dave. It's always the Word of God. That you would wonder at the Word of God. That you would desire to say, Boss, i got to take a day off. Yeah, what are you doing? I'm spending six hours in Scripture. In closing, Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, we see this. We see a conquered nation. They are a conquered people. We see a conquered nation that was allowed to build the Lord's house and preach the Lord's Word. A conquered people, a defeated people that God allowed them for His house to be built and His Word to be preached. That's the God that we serve. When we make a big deal about His house and we make a big deal about His Word, that we as conquered people can do those kind of things. Amen? Our God's in control, church. I'm going to invite up uh, Chris to close us in song. Let me pray for our, our time. Almighty God, You're so good. We, Lord, want to count the costs of discipleship. Lord, we want to wonder at Your Word. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we forget that Your Word was given to us. Forgive us for neglecting it. Forgive us, Lord, for putting other things before You, Lord, for nothing should come before You. Lord, we love You. We thank You. It's in Your mighty name we pray. Amen.